Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Isotopes, the new audio podcast. I am Sean Greenhall. We are very excited this month to bring you a chat with Guy Lawrence of the UK house duo Disclosure. If you haven't heard of Disclosure, they're kind of a big deal. Have you been to Iraq for the past five years? Pull it together, people. In the four years since their debut LP, Settle, the meteoric rise of Disclosure has been as unexpected as it has been astounding. At a time when brashness and repeated climaxes were de rigueur in dance music, Disclosure tapped into the house sounds of the mid-90s, wrote actual songs, and struck an international chord with dance, pop, R&B, and soul fans alike. Their song, Latch, with UK vocalist Sam Smith, was a global hit in 2014. Guy very kindly agreed to jump on a Skype call with Canadian co-host and Isotope product specialist Jeff Manchester and I a couple of weeks ago. Whether he regretted his decision is unclear at this point, but it sure was fun to talk with him. On top of this great interview, this month we're debuting two new segments on the podcast for your listening pleasure. I'm calling the first one the Can-Am Games, where Jeff and I will be debating the finer points and relative merits of selected production techniques. Spoiler alert, I will be winning all of those. And our second new segment will forever be known as Song Imploder, wherein Jeff and I will weigh in on the aesthetic value and cultural significance of music we think it is important in some way. Because our opinions matter. A lot. At least mine does. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Isotope Inc. And don't forget to write to us at artists at isotope.com if you have any feedback for the show. Okay, people, it's time for the new audio podcast. So Disclosure's on hiatus right now. What uh, what factors informed that decision? Um, well, we've been doing it for like seven years and uh, haven't really had much of a like life or late teen, early 20s, normal life yet. So... I think we just wanted to kind of experience that, especially Howard. I mean, my brother's, you know, he's been doing this since he was 15 and he kind of, you know, missed like a lot of social time with his friends and that kind of thing. So, you know, we just wanted to, uh, we just wanted to kind of experience that. You know, I just got back from traveling. I just did like a gap year, essentially. Um, very, very late <laughs> gap year. <laughs> so, yeah, it was really to just get away from music for a bit, um, get inspired and come up with some like new ideas without actually trying to make any ideas if you know what i mean just sometimes you need to step away and do nothing before you can come back and do a lot so we've been doing a lot for a long time and yeah we just needed to do just to do nothing for a little while now that they say that um you know if nothing goes into the creative mind in terms of taking in new ideas and art and music and things like that then the output can kind of dry up a little bit and having been on tour and and sort of been in in record cycles before it can be totally exhausting so it's great that you're getting some time to recharge thanks man yeah i think it was it's about time <laughs> well let's uh let, then let's talk about your your favorite plugins yeah for sure well i mean you you guys are right up there um yeah you were a big part of i'm not sure if i had the ozone stuff for settle i think we did for our first album i think i was on ozone five yep that was pretty much all we used um and it would just be kind of on the drum buses and the, the, I think I would always keep the stereo widening on on a few things. I I really like the stereo widener for synths for like um, exaggerating choruses on synths. You know, we love a really big wide chorusy Juno uh, with Disclosure. So there's a lot of that, and the stereo widener really helped to enhance that. I didn't really get like the multi-band compressor with Ozone Five because I just didn't know what one was. Um, <laughs> 
early days. Like I, I knew what a compressor was, but I didn't know the multi thing. So yeah, when I first got Ozone 5, I was pretty much in that stupid teenage zone of like, how do I make things louder? <laughs> and not even tastefully loud, just like, you know, being the kind of amateur producer that we that I was just you know thinking loudness is better in any capacity um so I think I mistreated Ozone 5 a bit but with our second album um with with Caracal um and you guys sent me six or seven I think six yeah I've I watched all the videos and I got much more I got an engineer as well to help with our second album just to like set up mics and help us do like comping um we were still still mixing all of it ourselves but um he was telling me about these, you know, different things and multi bands and EQ and limiting and how loudness isn't loud unless it's done right, you know, and all this kind of thing. And I learned about transients. And I think, yeah, when, when I got into six, um, that's when I really started to use like literally all of it. Um, I, the, the tape saturation thing is great as well. I love to use that on drum buses, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely, just for balancing out demos as well. I used to love just having Ozone on the output and just like quick master of everything. It's so useful for that and getting it sounding, you know, pretty decent to show managers and labels and things like that. It helps so much with that kind of thing. Um, but I'd say that the, the area that it's helped me most in, definitely drums. Like I love having Ozone on the, the final thing on the bus of the whole kit. Um, it'll probably go through, what does it go through? It goes through a little UAD Oxford inflator, first of all, and then then straight into Ozone, which will be pretty much everything. EQ, multiband, compressor, then tape sat. Um, and then I like the vintage compressor as well, actually, just a little one or two dB little tickle. And the, the way it does the mid-side um, thing is, is awesome. Um, and then I kind of switched between using yeah UAD Oxford um, Oxford limiter and then you guys' maximizer just depending on the kit and like how I think it's reacting. But it's they're on a level above everyone else. You know, I only really was using waves and the, just the logic stuff before that. And yeah, ozone really kind of opened my eyes to how transients are important and how you can save them uh, or leave them in depending on like the character of the track and it's not really about like what your ear hears, you know, and, and having the biggest, squarest wave you can on Serato. You know, I used to think, oh, if, Serato, <laughs> if Serato's wave is really square and like, <laughs> um, it must be really good. But then I was like, hang on, that sounds awful. So, yeah, <laughs> I would say the, the best thing that like Ozone's done for me was that it's really teach me, you know, the importance of transients and, and mastering. I kind of, I think every producer goes through that phase of, you know, knowing that, loudness isn't everything but it can be done tastefully and, and well and um yeah the plugin just helped me with that it was very it's very like simply laid out and really you guys just nailed it yeah i think for any producer who's just like putting limiters on every stage of their track to get it squarer and squarer and louder um you just start using ozone because you the graphs and the way that it dips in and out and stuff like that all the different ways you can look at it like for an amateur producer's perspective it taught me like how not to over compress and over limit if we could talk about mastering just for a second, uh, a little bit more. Yep. Tom Coyne, who mastered the excellent Caracal, oh, yeah, uh, passed away. I'm wondering if you could talk about what led to your decision to have him master the record and what you think uh, he brought to its sound. Yeah, rest in peace, Tom. Oh, I love uh, such a shame. He was so young. Like, yeah, really, really disappointed to hear that news. Yeah. Um, 
So two reasons, really. Number one, um, he mastered Sam's record, Sam Smith. So we already had like a relationship with him and a contact. So and I didn't really know his, his if he'd done dance music before, but I didn't really care because once I looked at his catalogue and I saw he did D'Angelo Voodoo, mm -hmm. I was sold. I was like, whoever mastered that, yeah. like, can he can master anything, surely, and he can do it well. Um, so, yeah, it, it was um, it was a frantic process because... We, with my first album, I was like there in the room when it was mastered and I did it in London um, with a guy called Stuart. And with this album, we were on tour uh, the week it was being mastered and I couldn't be there at the time. So there was a lot of back and forth emailing and a lot of listening in different headphones, different speakers, different rooms all around the world. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a mission. Uh, he nailed it. It was always me getting the mix wrong if there was any, <laughs> as it always is. You know, he always made it sound great. Um, I just had to, there was so much back and forth because I was messing up and I would never mix an album like that again. It was so frantic. Like, I'm glad we did it because keeping the flow of our album one into two was very important, you know, to maintain the momentum. Um, but God, yeah, I wish I just had a week spare just to sit at home and listen to it over and over again. It was frantic. But I'm glad we had someone like Tom who was so professional and, uh, awesome to better you know just keep mastering the same song two or three times even if i was still tweaking you know i just i couldn't i wasn't happy for a long time um but we got there yeah we got there and yeah he sent me a lovely email at the end being like yeah i loved working on the project it was incredibly enjoyable hope you guys all the best for the future blah blah, blah. so yeah really sad that he passed away yeah um, I guess when some this is a bit of a weird question, but when someone hears a disclosure track, you know mm. whether or not they know it's yours, and they go, "Oh, I think that's I think that's a disclosure track." What do you think are the the sort of hints, the musical hints that give it away that it might be you and your brother doing something? How do you hope they describe the disclosure sound? Um, I think I think it's uh, I think a lot of it's the chords. I think a lot of it's the the warm, jazzy, deep house influence chords, um, the kind of Junos and Jupiter you know, sawtooth stringy sounds that we use through the, you know, cut off filters, um, you know, which, which we just totally steal from Kerry Chandler and all that, all those kind of people, <laughs> you know, but I, I think it's that, I think it's combining that kind of genre of deep house and beautiful, simple loop of jazz chords, um, and combining it with pop, you know, if someone hears that and a big vocal comes in and you're like, Oh, that's really catchy or that sounds kind of poppy. I think people know pretty quickly that it's us. Um, and that's kind of was the idea behind the second album is that we wanted to maintain that sound of the warm jazzy chords and the vocals, but just mess with lots of different speeds. Um, you know, not just stick to house. That, that's basically what album two is. It's just the disclosure sound put into loads of different genres. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's that, um, skippy garagey drums, I think is another one, but, um, yeah, I like, I'd like to think that we remember for our chords and our melody. Cause I think we pride ourselves in those, um, a lot. Yeah. Very cool. I, I had a question about collaborating with vocalists. You guys have done a ton of that. And, um, you know, the Sam Smith track, uh, Latch was obviously huge, um, for you guys. Do you have a pref, do you have a preference for co collaborating in person or remotely or how does that usually play out for you guys? Um, Personally, for us, and this is just us, like I think anyone can do whatever they like. You know, there's no rules in music, but we are always in the room. Like, you, we always make sure the singer is there. Plus, you know, we, we only really work with singers who are also writers. You know, we don't really mm -hmm. work with any of the big pop star singers or, or don't have to be a big pop star, but any, any singers who, you know, are just just singers. 
um, who, you know, given the words and given the lyrics and the melodies and, you know, someone else writes the song, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think a lot of people probably think that is what we do. I think, you know, a lot of people maybe think me and Howard write the song and then the singer turns up and just sings it, but it's really not like that at all. Like, they're, a lot of them are there from completely blank projects like Fresh Start, Silence, and me and Howard will build the track around them. Um, and, you know, because they're in the room as it's forming, you know, they feel like really part of the track. Um, which we want them to feel so that they can then, you know, get a vibe of what the lyrics should be about. And then we all write the lyrics together, the melody together. Like it's a proper collaborative process. Um, I think remote can work. I think if you're a songwriter and you just have a song and you're like, I know it'd be perfect for this, like Rihanna or someone like that. And you just, <laughs> and like, you probably like write an absolute smash or, you know, not just Rihanna. Even I guess people who do write as well do that sometimes, you know, just because just because you've written the right song doesn't mean you should sing it. And sometimes you need someone else to sing that song. I don't know if you've talked to Rihanna recently, but she won't return my phone calls. So, like, just let her let her know I have some tracks for. Um, no, really. <laughs> we could do we could do great things. <laughs> I've never met her or spoken to her. So <laughs> I wouldn't be able to get you there, I'm afraid, sir. Uh, no, no, pro- no problem. I'll get there. It's uh, it's yeah. funny because we're talking about taking a hiatus from music and people can't see, but you've got a, a what looks like a gorgeous set of instruments and all that kind of uh, gear around you. How successful have yeah. you been? How successful have you been in uh, stepping away from music during the break? So yeah, I'm, I'm actually just here visiting. Uh, this this isn't my studio. This is um, um, Jimmy Napes. He's just here today. I live like 15 minutes from here and I've just come to see him for lunch. So yeah, no no music making today. Uh, okay. Although this is the most musical setting that I've been in for a long time and I thought it would be appropriate for the interview. But um, yeah, no, sadly just uh, just the observer today and catching up with an old friend. If, if you had uh, one piece of advice to give aspiring producer, engineer types, um, what would it be? What would you say, you know, this is something that you should absolutely concentrate on as you sort of aspire to do what you do oh tough one uh in a producing sense or a writing sense um let's say producing producing um number one rule is there's no rules like that's always the way just because someone else's mix is like that or someone else has done their drums like that like you don't have to copy them copying is good for learning though like, I think, uh, you know, I could show you a few tracks that sound a lot like Disclosure tracks. They're just very underground and no one's heard them. And, you know, you, you do you do learn by copying. You know, I think it's a good idea to try and make a song that sounds very much like someone else's at the start because you, you start to understand how these things are made. You know, like when I, when I first heard house music, I didn't know what a 909 was. But then I learned that all of the sounds of all the drums in house music are basically coming from one machine. And you're like, oh, that's where they get it all from. <laughs> you need to do like investigating and you need to figure out how people have done their own thing. But then, you know, make sure you're on a path that's leading you to your own thing. You know, you're not you're not just trying to do what's already been done. And if you are trying to do what's been done, just freshen it up. You know, I mean, everyone knows we didn't invent house music or garage or pop. We just combined all the things together and mm. you do your own thing with it. So just remember there's no rules would be my number one, like hundred percent thing in, in everything, mixing as well, mastering, even everything, you know, just cause it's been done a thousand times doesn't mean you should do it that way. Cause that's, that's how new music is born in my opinion. Do you mind if I poke in with one more question? Yeah, sure, man. Um, I guess in taking a step back, uh, have you been enjoying music more? And is there anything you can give a shout out to that's been on repeat for you? Yes, 100%. So yeah, I've just been traveling yeah, for a couple of months just uh, around Southeast Asia. Um, 
and yeah i didn't take a laptop well i took a laptop but it broke and i was like well that's a sure sign that I shouldn't be <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so i just had my guitar and i was just playing guitar watching the sun go down every day it was amazing um so yeah i've just been playing a lot of guitar which has been a lot of fun but listening to music um kendrick's number one right for me at the moment but, you know that album is is a sensation uh it's masterful as he always is you know i think he's he's right up there with eminem and biggie and tupac now for me he's in the the godlike area um musically and and rap you know vocally i think the whole thing's brilliant as it always is um so yeah that's that's right up there for me um Dance music I haven't been listening to very much. I've I've been taking a little break from trying to listen to house because we heard it every day of our lives in different, <laughs> different venues, and I fucking love it, and I always will, and I'll always make it. But like, yeah, I just needed to get away from house music for a bit. So yeah, lots and lots of old soul, um, lots of Motown. I made a nice like Motown Spotify playlist and just listened to that everywhere I went. Um, lots of what else? Lots of Beatles. I watched the new Ron Howard Beatles. Oh, nice. I got to check that out. Yeah, I thought it was really well done, man. That's just reignited my Beatles love for the last like week, um, which is always kind of in and out as everyone has their phases with the Beatles. But mm-hmm. yeah, just lots of old music. I've been trying to stay away from new um, because I feel like grime is doing its thing, which is awesome. Um, and, you know, people like Skepta and Stormzy are having massive success at the moment. And that's great. But like here in the UK, like I was listening to Grime, you know, like 10 years ago. So I've, I've kind of heard it and there's only a select few that are like really impressing me at the moment. So I'm not really listening to Grime in my spare time. I'm just really happy that all those guys are getting some success because they do deserve it. Um, and yeah, I think I just want to see how the house scene plays out now. You know, it's kind of it's been amazing to see it have so much success and be all over the radio and, you know, for us to go all the way to America. But I think it's time now to see how it evolves and how it changes because it always does um, and always has so I think we need to observe that and then once we feel like we know what we want to do with it um, then we'll then we'll see you again (laughs) okay cool last question have you um, so this guy Steve Lacey produced one of the the tracks on Kendrick's new album Damn and uh, he he, this the story came out in Wired this week that he produced the entire thing on an iPhone uh, using iOS um, how does how does that strike you? Does that seem like totally crazy, or is that kind of up up for for grabs as far as you're concerned? If if he did it, like I think that's sick. I think that's amazing. <laughs> like, I've tried to make phones on my iPhone and iPad before, and they always just they just sound like really cheap. You know, just I, you just can't tweak it enough to make it good, and it's horrible staring at that small screen like that for so. <laughs> <laughs> like, if he managed to do that, like well done to him. Like, I rate that. Yeah. Uh, which track was it? Uh, I can't remember offhand, but um, check it out. Google him. It, it's really, it's an interesting story. Put it this way. I, I've listened to the album a lot, like probably 10 or 15 times. And not once have I thought, I reckon that was made on an iPhone. That song. Yeah. So there you go. Very good job. If so, no, I think the production's amazing <laughs> on that whole record. So yeah, maybe cool. he started it. I, I would say it's probably been misconstrued from that. If, if I had to guess, I'd say maybe he made a beat on an iPhone and then took. Yeah, I don't. I don't imagine he like uh, exported an MP3 to the mastering engineer or anything. Kendrick singing <laughs> into the microphone of his phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound likely to me, but um, yeah, fair play if he did. <laughs> I'm all right about technologies well, and uh, yeah, doing that kind of thing. As as people know from our live show, you know, we have a lot of little gadgets on stage which we like to play with so i'm sure if he did do that well done and i'd like to meet him and he could teach me (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I think I actually think we're going to talk to him next week, so I'll, I will mention that. Um, thank you, uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking the time, and um, good luck on the new record. And uh, yeah, Jeff, any anything from you? No, man, I don't want to take up more of your time. Uh, I get hungry pretty easily, so I want you to enjoy your lunch. Thank you, <laughs> man. No, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Um, thanks for sending over the stuff as well. Like, I'm still getting into Neutron, and gonna I'm gonna learn more about that. Um, ne- Neutron is super deep, so definitely check it out. I because I feel like ozone you can you can like you can go quite hard with it and abuse it whereas neutrons more of like a very subtle adjustment mixing type thing so yeah I don't think I'll need it for a little while until we're mixing the album obviously but um yeah oh the vocoder synth you told me to use as well is a lot of fun oh good so awesome. yeah, it's re- it's really cool right yeah. out of the box I, just, I, I, the other day I was just running a synth through it and like playing chords like you would with deep house and it yep. was very easy to make a yeah, like a really nice chord pattern, just running it straight through the synth as it comes. Yeah, I really like that. If you end up using vocal synth on a record, you please have to tell us, please. Okay, well, <laughs> I'd like to think you could probably figure it out. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah, we'll I'll see. All right, guys, thanks so much. Um, yeah, wicked, big fan of the stuff. Welcome to our new segment, uh, Point Counterpoint, in which Jeff and I argue about things. Um, since this is a, an audio production podcast primarily, we'll, we'll generally be talking about music-related things. But uh, let it be known that while there there's some ribbing that goes on here, there's some uh, there may be some gentle insults thrown around, there's a there's a deep underlying respect and love that that is going that, um, one way. Jeff has that, yeah, <laughs> that Jeff has for me, and I just don't care about him at all. Um, so if you're hearing any of that, that's what that is. Jeff, do you I concur? I feel like I should just knee jerk disagree with you, but since we aren't in the segment yet, I concur. I totally agree with you, Sean. Okay, so what do we choose for this this episode's topic on the old point counterpoint? The old point count. Okay, well, we're going to be talking about drum machines versus, I guess, drummers or drum performances recorded or at least performed on a real, quote-unquote, acoustic drum kit. And I guess I am going to be taking the position of, I like drum machines because I really do, and you are going to be taking the position of, I like real drumming and real drum performances. I was a drummer by trade for, for 10 years, so obviously I'm I'm coming from, if you don't have a drummer on stage hitting things, it's just less of an engaging thing, in, in my opinion. Um, so that's where I'm coming from. On the other hand, Jeff likes to sit alone in, in a room with his computer and make music that way uh, without other people and, and with a little bit less of the human touch. I imagine, I'm just kind of speculating, but that's what I sort of imagine. I think when you're when you're listening to pop music, you're, you're looking for that emotional engagement and there's something kind of ineffable about the human performance. I I know when my band was making our records early on and and playing live, there was a certain um, nervousness and anxiety that went along with sort of everything that we did, both because that's how we felt in life, but also we were sort of terrified of, um, of performing and that really came through in the music in a way that I think kind of resonated with people. And um, it was kind of this like caffeinated, anxious, rhythmic approach. Um, similarly, you know, a guy like John Bonham, 
his feel that he brought to to drums and grooving was this kind of like laid back behind the beat swagger. Uh, and, and that's not something that, you know, I, I don't think that it, it can be created in the same way in a computer. Okay, now before I destroy everything you say, because it's ridiculous and subjective, I like drum performances, I like drummers, but where are you coming from on the on the the um, on the drum machine side? Is it that you, that you like? Oh, I appreciate an eight hundred eight, but you know what I mean. What what is what's the source of your opposition towards um, uh, drum machines? Or am I wrong in thinking that you have any real opposition to them? You just think that uh, they're they're fine, but drumming real drumming is better. I love drum machines as well, but I also think that. Without that human element, there's a little bit of disconnection, distance that the drum drum machine creates because it feels like the groove is kind of robotic, whereas uh, human percussion is sort of more inviting. And uh, and you're right, this this is totally subjective, but um, there's something about, especially uh, drum machines when they're not kind of uh, when they're not grooving as well. It's just this very kind of like staccato robotic thing. That is just only that, you know? Here's my issue. Here's my issue with that. Um, I get what you're saying, but I feel like maybe after 1980, your argument sort of goes out the window. And by that, I mean that I, I guess I should st- I'm going to steal Jonathan Weiner's question framing device, which is what should people be thinking about when they think about a drum performance? And my answer would be they should be thinking about the post-production process. That's a nonsense approach, by the way. <laughs> Those are the shots fired, Jonathan. Well, uh, well, here's it. No, I, I actually, before I'm going to let you frame that argument, this is, right. I want, I'm about to go off on a tirade because myself and a lot of people at Isotope kind of disagree where it's like, well, how should we be thinking about this? And how should we be thinking about that? And intellectualizing a lot of different things. And like, but how does a kick drum sound? Um, and, and what is like, what's the EQ doing? And those are all super important and, and valid for lots of different kinds of musicians, engineers, and producers. But I just feel like at a certain point, we, we totally lose the big picture. And, uh, you know, the it's art. It's music. Like, you don't need to be so analytical about it all the time. Like, just listen and feel. That's the point. That's ironic because we have a podcast where we talk about these things. And that's <laughs> that's that's the the grist for the mill. But on the other hand, I just I feel like we get uh, we get carried away sometimes. Okay, well, I'll allow myself to get carried away with uh, with with or without your permission. So, okay, here's the thing: in post production, once you let's say you when you're in clap your hands, say yeah, you record something in the studio, not live. We're not talking about live performances because I think even some drum machine performances can be really compelling and exciting. For sure, but. Once you record something, um, and not everyone knows this, but it's really important to know that this happens. Often the drum performance that has been captured via some sort of multi-mic setup has been manipulated and altered in a way that makes it work with sort of the big picture of the song. So I don't mean to personalize everything to you with clap your hands. So yeah, but let's just say that you went in and you recorded your drums. You guys had a great session, you know, very few overdubs, blah, blah, blah. The drums probably went through a couple different stages of alteration. And this is where I, I get less sympathetic to the whole like drumming is more human and more real because there's a couple things that happen in post-production, sample enhancement, sample replacement, and quantization. 
So I'm just going to briefly cover this. So sample enhancement is when we take the snare hit and the kick or the toms and we bring in another sound from another sample pack or someone else's performance, let's say. Um, and then we sort of line up the, we line up Sean's snare hits with someone else's snare hits, or maybe they're generated from, God forbid, a drum machine. And we sort of sweeten those, those hits. Sometimes it's worse than that and more brutal, and we get sample replacement, which is where that entire performance, toms, kick, everything, it just wasn't enough. Uh, let's say, you know, you guys went in and everything, and then the producer's like, well, we got to make sure that this really hits on the blogs and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, someone's not going to repost it unless it has a certain sound. So then all of the, the sounds that you recorded, it's like, thanks, that was great. But we replace those samples entirely with something that triggers samples from, again, a sample pack. So the performance is totally replaced with this other sort of sound set. And then what happens is that performance is tightened and it's quantized and it's, you know, pulled to the 30, 30 second note on some sort of grid, you know, four to the floor grid or something at 128 BPM. So this performance that happened that everyone was really satisfied with now has to meet the sort of satisfaction of, you know, the ridiculous public and for it to satisfy those requirements of, you know, taste and blah, blah, blah. It has to be manipulated, enhanced, replaced, tightened through elastic audio or through Melodyne or whatever. So it's like, that's why I say, what should we think about when we think about a drum performance? Because once it makes it past that post-production sort of chain line, it is something in my view, just it's not what it used to be. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think we're uh, Clap Your Hands was a, a specific case because we tried to you know, the band would play together, or at least, um, you know, the rhythm section would play together in a room to try to capture that vibe. And stuff definitely got nudged around for sure. Um, but we never uh, we never quantized and we never sample replaced or anything like that because that's not sort of the, the genre didn't really call for that. And, you know, philosophically, I, I think we wanted it to be more organic. Um, but you're hearing what you're talking about, this sort of like post-production assembly line you're hearing that a ton um i was listening to taiko recently and i think the the what you just talked about that whole assembly line is is must be how that how they make their drum performances and uh it's an aesthetic and it's sort of pristine i don't i don't happen to like it it feels really super slick to me um especially when it's combined with the side chaining and all this like compression stuff um but I, I i think that the listener might be certainly the pop listener is getting more trained to hear that sort of thing but for my taste i, I want to hear something that that's just compelling and different sounding i think when you're when you are affecting everything so much and you're doing so much post-production you're kind of sucking the life out of it and um and the last thing that i would tag on to that is at least when you're sample replacing, the original groove is still there. Um, so that that that's sort of fair game to me, where it's like, yeah, the the feel, the wave that the the drummer was riding, um, is sort of still there. The performance is still there. It's just the sound is augmented, which is you know you could argue is the same as like EQing a snare or compressing it or something. Um, does that make any sense? That makes sense. I I that 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 makes sense. I think that. Yeah, there's some give and takes, but the performance, quote unquote, is still there. The soul of, you know, the drum performance is there. But I think like, 
Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but just, you know, just go l- listen to uh, any Stevie Wonder drum performance or Bonham or go listen to Appetite for Destruction. Like the the tempos are just all over the place, but it, it just works, you know, like and, and people respond to it. Well, that's the thing is that all, well, all and well, most of those examples that you just pointed out all happened, I think, before we went a bit crazy with computers and Pro Tools, and we had the ability to tailor and tweak the snot out of every single, agreed, you know, uh, every single um, tick, you know, of of a song. Um, but I, I mean, I agree. I, listen, I love Bill Bruford. I love the late and incredible Jackie Liebesit of Can. Um, I go back to those records, and the performances are visceral and palpable and exciting and all the rest of it and even you know uh to an extent like some of radiohead stuff while it's pretty tame is really exciting rhythmically but i know i i know how the sausage gets made now and i know what goes into it and it's really difficult to disassociate yourself from the post-production process once you've been a part of it and just listen to records now and go you know did it sound like that when they were all on drugs recording this amazing take you know probably not or maybe maybe we won't know and you get bands now that go on stage and this isn't really a, a counterpoint against your point but this is more of a rant you get bands that go on stage and just don't know how to play because well, they didn't know absolutely. how to play before i mean the <laughs> my band didn't know how to play at first you got you have to it takes years to figure that shit out um but pro tools obviously this may be stating the obvious, but Pro Tools has really allowed us all to not need to get that take right because we can bump things around if we need to. And, you know, musicians know that. So they're like, yeah, it's good enough and you can take care of it. Um, the one other piece that uh, that we hadn't mentioned is just sort of click or no click. Mm. And um, I think the click can be useful, at least from a production standpoint, and just it's sort of takes one piece of the drummer's job away from them and lets them sort of concentrate on purely the the performance and instead of just, you know, adding in the tempo piece. And that that has been, I would say, you know, 30% or 40% of the stuff that I played on four albums was done to a click. And that's that's pretty useful in the studio, but I would say that the the songs where I'm not using a click and you can hear tempo shifts and um, ebbs and flows those are pretty engaging and, and they, they hold up too. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I still think that you can get a certain, it's funny because like there's this band, I think it's, they're called bad, bad, not good. And there was a couple of performances they did here in Toronto where the drummer was trying to sound like an 808, which probably does your head in Sean to hear that. <laughs> um, so you have like, you know, real people with real instruments trying to mimic electronic stuff or trying to go MIDI or whatever. And I find that sort of synergy and that borrowing of aesthetics and rhythms and polyrhythms and all that. I I find that really exciting and compelling. Um, I don't know. Could we geek out a little bit here and maybe talk about, maybe you can talk about some of your favorite drummers or tracks with amazing drumming in it. And I'll geek out about my favorite um, drum machines and tracks featuring some amazing drum machines. Sure. I I also have a question. Um, Yeah. uh, 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 a question specifically about, um, and I've been doing this in my own productions lately. Been trying to bring some of that life to my my drum machine stuff, and I've tried extracting grooves from different performances, and sort of uh, pulling that MIDI onto the um, the drum machine that's triggering audio, and and that's kind of interesting. I haven't had a ton of success with it. Do you have? Um, workflows where where you feel like you can get that drum machine to feel a little more human. 
You know, it's funny because I totally avoid, I, I like I when I'm doing any electronic drum work or even when I'm composing and I'm making something that sounds sort of John Williams-y or Johan Johansson-y or something like that, I try I try to, to make electronic drums just stay electronic. In mm. fact, I really dislike swing. I hate swing. No kidding. I try to avoid swing. Yeah, there's this guy named Jimmy Edgar and all of his stuff post-2008 is electronic guy. He just He's like, I'm just going to avoid trying to humanize and uh, bring any sort of physicality into my into my electronic music, and I love it. I'm so, it's just like I'm, um, whether or not I know it, I'm just sort of addicted to that sound of just purely, you know, craft worky sort of four on the floor, no swing, robots made this uh, kind of music. But if I'm doing anything that requires the sort of human element in there, usually for me it's about playing with velocity. So the you know the attack with which you hit you strike your skin or whatever like that. If you can get in there in MIDI and randomize your uh, velocities, you can do this sometimes with a pencil tool where you can just go slide up and down and, and draw. Um, so painstaking. Sort of it's, yeah, some, well, some DAWs are, are better than others. Cubase, it's really easy to do that. Um, Sonar, it's really easy to do that. In Ableton, it's not easy to do that. You have to do everything by hand. And there is a kind of... I don't know. It's almost like maybe people who love to sew or loom. Maybe it's the same like, therapeutic release. <laughs> it's a craft. I, yeah, it's a yeah, craft. Yeah, I, li- I kind of like doing it. But I mean, obviously, not everyone has the time and, and stuff. But I, no, I try to keep things in the orchest- orchestral world orchestral and in the electronic world as electronic as possible. And I'm just allergic to swing and sort of humanizing any electronic music. And that's probably not helpful at all to your production, is it? So, you know, I, I sort of feel like I gravitate towards that too, weirdly. I, you know, I've been arguing for the human drummers and everything, but like um, I've been making a bunch of tracks lately and uh, inevitably they, they do sound up, they end up sounding like um, just kind of like really popular 80s stuff where it's just that, that you know, the the four in the floor thing and the, with the huge, you know, gated snare or something. I'm just like addicted to that, which is very much that drum machine thing with with a zero groove on it so i've been trying to explore other ways to get out of that um but uh i don't know it's, it's i guess it's sort of like a, a never-ending quest it, yeah it's probably it's something you, you need to get got to work on because i i'm not really sure because i i'm so allergic to that sort of that sound that i probably wouldn't be able to to really guide you but there are some really great tools out there now there's um just some quick shout-outs to some some sort of software sense. If you've ever heard of um, Sonic Couture, you ever heard of those no, guys? No, I haven't. They're based out of Toronto and London, uh, UK London, and uh, they just released this thing called Electroacoustic where it's really interesting to this conversation. They recorded about a dozen great electronic uh, drum machines. Uh, I guess they're synths, really. Um, they're, you know, synth drum machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from, like, the, uh, uh, the Lindrum to the... Um, Oberheim DMX to the 303, or sorry, not 303, the 808 and the 909, and they recorded them inside of an actual room where they recorded um, they recorded those sounds coming out of a PA. They recorded the sounds of keys on top of a, a snare skin shaking as the PA, hmm. as the, the, the sound pressure levels from the PA vibrate the keys. Mm-hmm. So they recorded all of these electronic drums in an acoustic environment. So it's called ele- electroacoustic. And it might have some tool. Maybe there's some tools in there and some little groove machines in there to help you in your quest to sort of humanize. Totally. Yeah, totally. What little, can you say uh, that yeah. the name of it again? So it's called Electroacoustic, and yep. it's by Sonic Couture, and it's terrific. I just got it the other day. In this segment that we're newly creating for this podcast, 
um, because people love segments and Jeff needs to have uh, things in little boxes and he's, he's afraid of uh, chaos and disorder uh, which is part of what you know a lot of people just they kind of function on fear and anyway listen uh, this is the third segment and we're going to talk about the new Kendrick Lamar track Pride that was produced by a gentleman who's not a gentleman well he is a gentleman but he's 18 and he produced the track using an iPhone and we just wanted to talk about it because I, I think it's significant that you are now seeing people able to produce stuff on iPhones and iOS that is hanging with some of the the best productions in the world. Um, so Jeff, take it away. Uh, oh boy. Okay. So first of all, I mean, I feel like we have to be careful when we talk about this producing. First of all, I have a really hard time with the word producing. I don't, I literally don't know what it means. And that isn't like, you know, me being cool or anything. I, I don't know. It, it, producing used to mean you, you would set up the session, you would book the, the session players, you would book the space, blah, blah, blah. Now producing is everything from beat making to, I don't know, telling people who do something great how to do it even better. I, anyway, so I guess he produced it on his phone, but I'm not really sure what that means. And from the research that I've done, it sounds like he used iRig, which is an app that allows him to plug guitar into his uh, iPhone 6. He played it. I think he, he recorded uh, Anna Wise, who collaborates a lot with uh, Kendrick Lamar. And then he played it in a room where Kendrick was, and Kendrick loved the beat that he created. I guess he produced that. He made the beat, and then it might have been exported and then massaged and mixed and overdubbed with some kind of haunting vocals or whatever. And then it got mastered, and, and it's what's on the record today. But I just don't know if I should fall hook, line, and sinker to mix metaphors <laughs> in with the marketing that like this came from an iPhone and this is the future. You know what I mean? Well, I think, yeah, I, I actually, I, I do, I do know what you mean. And we can always come up with false narratives around things that aren't really happening um, because we're bored and we need to have things to talk about. Um, but I think that there's something that we can all relate to about having an idea and wanting to, in the moment jump on the thing and make it happen and the technology a lot of times just sort of gets in the way of that creative piece and anytime that I hear about something like that where he's he just has an idea and and he makes something in the moment I, I think that's really kind of beautiful um that a he can do that and b that it that it can hang sonically with a lot of the other stuff going on right now so um yeah I, I think i think you're right i think the bottom line is no matter what part of the track actually made it to a mixing engineer and made it to a professional arranger i mean if you look at the discogs for this record and for this song specifically there's like eight people on it and he is a co-producer so no matter who, like how, how many hands it went through and how many you know professional mixing or mastering houses it went only one mastering house i think um, the bottom line is he recorded something that was really special to him. The bottom line is is that he captured something and in such a way that it delighted Kendrick Lamar, right? He captured that on his phone, and that demo in whatever iteration it was in by the time it got to Kendrick is what Kendrick loved. And this kid was able to get it um, in the moment really quick, bring vocals in and everything, and it really, you know, it it 
it's it's on the record, one of the biggest hip hop records of all time. So I think that says something for sure. But I just I'm I'm hesitant to believe the marketing around these sort of stories because I know how things can get sort of broken telephony, and we this can maybe lead someone to think that you know some really poorly recorded thing in a really awful space by someone with very little talent, you know, that is enough to get you, <laughs> you know, on, on the back of a record with a, a famous person. So I'm, I'm being all, I'm being kind of uh, persnickety about this, but that's how I feel. If you have suggestions for topics for Jeff and I to tackle in point counterpoint or songs that you're interested to hear our unique Canadian slash American take on, uh, please email me at artists at isotope.com. I will not give you my personal email address because I'm afraid of the world. Thank you for listening to the new audio podcast. Uh, we will see you next time. Please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Isotope Inc. And uh, we will see you next time. <laughs>